Well, hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Squiggly Film Club. I'm Ben Mitchell, joined by Laura Beth Cowley. Hello, Laura. Hello. And Steve Henderson. Hello, Steve. Bonjour. Well, what uh, what film will we be watching today? What won the popular vote? The public have spoken, Ben. There was a split vote between Twitter and Facebook. So on Facebook, the Little Prince won with... Uh, Quite a big percentage. It was something like, it was 73% on Facebook. But there was a last ditch effort led by me, uh, just kind of bugging people to vote for Comic Quest or The Adventures of Mark Twain. Uh, and it did nothing. So in the end, it was 60 40 and The Little Prince won. So I'll be watching The Little Prince. Yep, you can't, uh, you can't meddle with politics. I tried. I really tried. And I, I've got the. I've got my Blu-ray of... This is a sound listen. A Blu-ray of The Adventures of Mark Twain. Ready to play. Aww. But, you know, I'll just have to throw it in the bin. <laughs> Set it ablaze. <laughs> <laughs> so we're watching The Little Prince, the adaptation by Mark Osborne and a very talented team. Um, we've actually... Uh, actually, let's start it. Yeah. Because okay. uh, it's one hour, 46 minutes. Christ alive. Um, and right. there's a lot of not stop motion to get through. So we are watching the Netflix version. Let's go. Three, two, one. One. Did you just turn it off? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just turned it off. I was like, no. <laughs> oh. So we got lights and swirly bits. What the um, hell is Orange Studio? I guess it's a. Um, oh, it's, it's, a it's a mobile a- phone. Yeah, like when did they have a film studio? Wow, I guess I, shortly before they they then stopped they being orange. <laughs> oh yeah, orange is probably isn't what, even a thing uh, anymore. What sank is, them. is orange EE now, or is EE orange? I forget. I believe so. I believe uh, whatever orange. it is, I'm with it. So I should know because <laughs> they take a percentage of my money every month. So this is the this is the longest uh, of the. Squiggly Film Club films we're going to review, I think, uh, or so have weird. reviewed since, and 15 minutes in, and we've just got through the credits, the credit logos. Um, this is what takes, this is why it's so long. Yeah. <laughs> is this part of the film? Yes. <laughs> yeah. I so we've got some nice long... 2D animation here. It's very weird to watch without the sound because it constantly looks like the TV's just broken. Mm. He's dipping to black. These are the illustrations from the actual book, aren't they? Yes. This particular one I remember quite fondly. Yeah, it's the the a drawing of, like, it looks like a hat, but there's actually a snake with an elephant in it. Mm. Mm. And it sort of, like, sets up the point of the book that adults can't imagine things. Or lose their imagination over time. So I'm reading the uh, modus operandi of Orange Studio. <laughs> what about adults not been able to? to <laughs> adults not been able to use their imagination. Bend straight there on company's house. Then <laughs> <laughs> we talk about business. <laughs> well, you'll be pleased to note while Orange no longer positions itself with a view to total convergence. Their strategy of positioning themselves as a willing partner of traditional players, such as content producers, has proven to be the right one. So there you go. Orange is recognised as a partner to French cinema. Oh, weird. Why isn't it called L'Orange? L'Orange. 
Yeah, they should have. Uh, they missed a trick there. Um, whenever so you no hear something still ongoing, thing, but. whenever you say something going to do total convergence, I think that's where it said earlier on. That sounds evil. Yeah, it really does. It's like the evil animation studio. Yeah. <laughs> so we've seen some two D animation with little flashbacks to the to the book, and now we're in CG world. So. The uh, the movie, as it is, is quite lengthy. The book is not enormously lengthy, as is often the case with children's books that are made into animated features. There's a lot of buffer. Mm-hmm. I feel like I need to mention that I think the mum in this looks so much like um, Fraser's wife in Fraser. Oh, wow, yeah. I'm like, was that the plan? Is it Neris? Very possible. No, Neris is Niles, isn't it? It's uh, Lilith. Lilith. Lilith, right. Yeah. And also, like, the dynamic is very Lilith-y. Like, she's a single parent. The f- in this, the fathers are strange. But, like, that they're very, like, keen on their kids being adults and intelligent as quickly as possible. This, of course, I guess is the completely made-for-the-film storyline. Yeah. Um, the actual adaptation as such as more of a kind of story within the story so we have a largely original concept as this rather bulky framing device and when we get to the adaptation proper that personally for me is where it kind of becomes more appealing and that's Mm. where it pretty much switches to stop motion it does feel like yeah, it, feels, it is very much a film inside a film, and I always feel like, actually, you can watch the whole stop-motion Vimeo, uh, on Vimeo part, like the whole stop-motion sequence cut yeah. together as one on Vimeo, and it's it's basically like a short film inside of a feature film, which is quite weird. I mean, to be brutally honest, I think that something like a 20 to half hour special in stop-motion, just the adaptation element of it on its own... Could arguably have been a better um, way of going about it. It's it's such a hum- huge IP though. Like it's isn't it like it's one of the most transcribed into as every single language on earth almost, and into over two hundred languages book ever. Yeah. It's it, like second to the Bible. It's it's a, it's an enormously. So I feel like I mean it wouldn't be something I would want to touch with a barge pole. Like, just the expectation. Like, I don't feel like there was any way of making this film where some everyone wouldn't be like, well, it's not what I would have done. <laughs> because it's so beloved as a story, and so many people have so many personal feelings towards it. I just feel like it would be such a daunting task. Like, you have to have real balls to be like, I'm going to adapt The Little Prince, and I'm also going to make up 90% of it. I mean, there are some books that, yeah, they're, they're sort of so kind of classically ingrained that you sort of don't want to touch. And then there are some books that feel like the whole point of them is that they are a book and that's sort of the only form they should take. Mm-hmm. Um, the other kind of interesting thing is obviously a lot of the feature films we've covered during this time are book adaptions and book adaptions of really small books that don't really have a lot of story to them. But that story has been sort of peppered throughout a feature-length film. So it's actually quite a, kind of an unusual thing, because they actually cut bits from the the book out of this film, like certain characters, like adult characters. 
in favour of this story device to make it feature length. And then, like we said, it's all it's also longer than any feature film we've done. Mm. So it's like, it's just an odd... It's not something I can really think of that's been done before to adapt a book, but adapt it by bookending it with a completely other story that's sort of not anything to do with the book. I mean, yeah, the... the now, I, I to be honest, I've only actually watched it the once when um, mm. we spoke to the people involved in it. And I've watched that stop motion sequence, as you mentioned, that it's online um, on its own. I've watched that a few times. But the sort of story as a whole, I don't really remember... Uh, the old man, is he the pilot? He's the aviator. So I guess that is the fundamental connection is it's mm. the, how do we reconcile this man who went on this adventure as a child? Um, how I, do we conclude that? Which I found was the element of the story that was the least necessary. I think also it was to sort of represent the author. So the author of the book, the original book, used to tell the story to his nephews and nieces and was from all sort of tales, was basically the aviator, who was like this guy who was very, um, like, childlike and had, he was a bit of a oddball, but in a nice way. <laughs> and he, um, and so he really, you know, and there's lots of readings of the book, like the, the Little Prince and the aviator are the same person sometimes yeah. in pe some people's readings. And it's just this thing that, I, I do wonder if, I think that was the way they sort of maybe in their head sort of structured it, is that he is the aviator, but also the author is the aviator, and so that character is in it. But it does fit, what I find quite strange about it is that it does feel like a very Americanized telling of that story. Like, the fact that it's, the aviator is an actual aviator hmm. in real life who imagines he like it sort of tells the story as if he went back which is apparently how the author used to tell his nephews and nieces as well but it just feels very um what's the word literal yeah where the, the actual book is not remotely literal it's mm. very like it's very french it's very like it, it's not really about a talking rose yeah it's like, like the, think yeah. you know take from it what you will kind of thing it has this very and it's just like it just feels odd that it sort of got picked up in this quite commercial way to be and obviously there's been tons of different adaptions mostly live action right. uh versions of it in the past which also still feels too literal where with the dream sequence or like the story sequences where it goes into stop motion um it makes perfect sense because it has a more shot. yeah i do like all the kind of like i get the point the symbolism is very i think it's just that the, the this this version of the of the story kind of only gives you like one reading of the book yeah and that reading is you know as you grow up you lose your imagination and it's important to hold on to that which is something that's very vital in animation in general hmm. i think it's it's something that like we uh, as a as an art form and as as makers of animation you toy with a lot is that and it, you know you're often you often get quotes from animators and stuff that was like oh i just never really grew up and i basically never wanted to stop playing with toys and making up stories so it makes sense to me that this should have always been adapted into an animation um 
so in that sense, I think it's a it's a good way of uniforming that, and the most kind of like way of creating something that's hyper real in in animation would be CG, which is why I think they've how they you know made it logical for themselves, and because it's this very like it's a, the exact thing that you would think of CGI as being, which is like very neat, tidy rows, computer generated, sterile. And then this creature that has this kind of like the the aviator guy that sort of breaks that, but not a hundred percent, and then we go into the stop motion sequence that breaks it down even more. Yeah. Well, it's sort of it's definitely a more sort of pointedly sterile, like first impression, than a lot of CG films that are kind of trying to endear themselves to the kids watching. Um, I guess in service to the character of the mother and this sort of very strict um also reading the art of book the mother was is actually the thrust like the driving thrust in the story it's not the child and it's not the aviator it's the mother and her her misguided attempt to do the best by her child but by trying to do that she's actually ruining her childhood by making her have Mm. to be this like tiny little woman rather than a child with like you know the whole board that tells her when she can go to the bathroom and when how much she has to study in order to get like her whole life is mapped out right up until college and actually i think afterwards like until like she's employed um and that being like the major theme of the book is that children should be allowed to be children um and also apparently originally there were going to be two parents as well, like I think originally there was going to be a mother and a father, but they've changed that. I've never seen this film. I've seen it for the first really? time. Yeah, I, when when it came out, I think uh, I was like, oh, "I'm going to watch it," and then didn't. I <laughs> think that's my yeah. excuse as far as excuses go. Why didn't it appeal? I'm not saying it didn't appeal. It's just that you know the the way we decide to use our time you know <laughs> um i just i just couldn't get around to watching it but uh yeah i was waiting for this opportunity to to talk over it for a podcast rather than actually you know immersing myself in it properly and watching it properly do you know what else mark osborne made yeah i've seen more i've seen his short film more Have you guys he seen also that did, uh, kung fu panda as well hmm have you seen more? I don't think so. It's a good film. It's uh, there you go. Damn it with faint praise. But, but it, it, <laughs> There's um, a reason I can only think of that as like the end sequence from like Rick and Morty. It's a good show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good the film, but um, yeah, it, it, it's uh, uh, so it's it's a it's a short. It, it, it won at Sundance, I think, um, in 1999, and it was nominated for an Oscar. So it's you know it's it's a, it's a good looking piece of work. So have a little look at it. It's called uh, it's called More, and the idea behind the film is basically um, these guys live in this grey existing. This world's just completely grey. Uh, it's stop motion, um, but they just keep wanting more, as is the title. And I think it's a parable on. You know, the hedonic treadmill, the idea that, you know, if you actually get what you're after, 
and then you get it and then you want something else and then that doesn't satisfy and then you want something else and so the whole film's uh, based around that it's definitely worth watching it's got a real kind of scary kind of creepy aesthetic which is cool like proper proper stop motion yes but yeah well, I've seen Kung Fu Panda, though, so that's completely different. <laughs> well, we have actually had um, a few people who worked on this film on the regular podcast uh, around the time it came out. Um, if you go back to episode 56, we did a kind of uh, podcast special on it, essentially. Uh, so that would be, I guess, companion listening. Mm. to this episode and we spoke to uh, the stop motion team Jamie Killery and Alexander Yuhaz and Corin Merrill and Anthony Scott uh, very very talented bunch with some lovely sort of insights into the process um, and again I think that sort of is telling in so far as that was where I think our main area of interest lay I think we actually approached them to kind of get some time with them that was quite a big one because i think both you and i interviewed like four of them at the same time which yeah. is not something we've ever done since i don't think no it was uh it was a bit of a, a gamut you know it's a tricky i mean it's now it's of course commonplace because that's how everyone talks to everyone yes, but yeah, um yeah, yeah. yeah big sort of conference call interview i think there was a little bit of like interference here and there but it came out pretty well um Something that else that's quite interesting, if you have the art book, it's on page 10 to 13, is that in order to pitch the film, um, Mark had a, what he refers to as a magic suitcase created by Joe Schmidt. Schmidt. Uh, Schmidt. Schmidt. Uh, to pitch the um, idea not just to uh, people who wanted to work on the film, but to distributors as well, which was full of like physical things. So it's like I think he used the stop motion aspect of it to sell it. Okay, it's more a CG film, Steve. But we don't do CG films on the the Squiggly Film Club podcast. Is more. It's more. You were just talking oh, sorry, about I, said, I thought film. you said. I thought you said it's more a CG film. Uh, my ears are painted on. Sorry. Um, it's no. It's stop motion. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a so, stop. Yeah. He's the perfect combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's odd that you. Well, not odd, but it's interesting that he would have used physical objects to entice people in. Yeah. To what is at least half, if not more, CG. Oh, it's yeah, far greater percentages, CG. Um, but it does go to show you just how um, tangible objects and stop motion just has such appeal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the CG in this is quite interesting because actually, when you look at it, it's actually really good. And there's some scenes later on. Uh, there's like there's there's almost three parts to the story. There's the the beginning bit where everything's very light and very sterile. There's a stop motion sequence that sort of comes in and out a couple of times that the, and the, there's uh, which is sort of mirrored by this sort of increased colorfulness of the aviator um involvement in her life and then the end sequence is like this weird hybrid thing where people from the stop motion world sort of come into this 
are replicated by other people in the CG world, but this much greyer, grimmer version, but it comes becomes a bit surreal in the end. Mm. Um, but it does sort of... So the, the CG is really, is really, really good, but there's something about some of the promotional stuff for this film. So, like, I mean, Netflix is terrible for this anyway, but the poster they have for the film at the moment on Netflix is awful. It makes it look so cheap and tacky because they've, they've like, um, edited the aviator, the CG a- a- aviator against a blue background and then, like, the Little Prince logo, which I really don't like for some reason. Like, the the one they made for this film where they did, like, basically a CGI rendering of the original handwritten title. Yeah. And there's just something about it that makes it look like... You know, like, when you get those really cheap remakes of, like, um, proper films, like, proper Disney films, where it's, like, Frozener or <laughs> yeah, Co- Panda or Foo, you know? Like... <laughs> Which I've seen. I, I what was it called? Oh, I found a proper like rip off of Kung Fu Panda. It was called Chopstick Panda. Yes. <laughs> um, but it made it. It just makes it look really. Sometimes the characters in isolation and not with the amount of detail and not in context makes it look a bit cheap. Uh, which I do wonder if it if that makes people not that interested to put it on. This sequence is the best sequence. <laughs> In the entire yeah, film, which is you know, it's very Jamie Cleary. Jamie Cleary is one of those animators that is just such a like hero of mine. He was someone that like on my undergrad, me and my other my fellow animation students were just like absolutely besotted with, and was a huge inspiration to a fair few of us. And he's just one of those people that you. Like it's really well known and well well respected within the animation industry, um, not only because he makes beautiful work in this very unusual way, which is this kind of like two and a half D paper cut stuff, which is not it's paper animation. He's kind of like the daddy of paper animation, hmm. but it's not like what you think of when you think of paper animation, like Lossie Reiniger or Terry Gilliam. It's this kind of pop up book style, but he's just very very clever with uh, false perspective and drawing, and it's just a beautiful amalgamation of all of it but he's obviously really well known for the fact that he was uh to one of the halves of the people that invented dragon frame which is now used by every animation studio stop motion animation studio on earth pretty much um it's a big one it's yeah it's an amazing piece of software and it really has allowed a lot more complicated things to be achieved in stop motion but he's he's one of those people that you kind of you just don't really you see him around a lot and you hear and everyone always has such praise for him and he's a really really nice guy um but when you look at his imdb he's got like three references to him as a, doing stuff and most of it is his own stuff and he did he he's well known for doing music videos but once again there's only like two um and then he does a lot of title sequences and that's i think Outside of Dragon Frame, what he's mostly known for is doing mm. the end credits for Lemony Snickets and doing an ad for... I think he did something for Hellraiser, Ben. Oh, really? Yeah, I, on IMDb, he's he's credited as being the, I think, title credits on Hellraiser Inferno. Okay. One of the later Hellraisers. Yes. The bah! <laughs>
So he's he's one of those odd people that I think also we, uh, me and Ben were at did some online Zoom chat where that I think was organised. I forget who it was organised by, but Jamie Collieri was the guest, and so it was him sort of talking about his career and doing a Q and A. And I think he worked on Coraline as well, but once again, he's not credited on it. Oh, he's not credited on his own IMDb page as working on Coraline, which right. is weird. Like, and I think because I remember him talking about like at quite a lot of length about doing this rain sequence from outside of her window and how full on that was because they wanted it in a very specific and quite labor intensive way. Um, that looks beautiful, but it's one of those kind of things. Like, was it like? It's such a short sequence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, IMDb can be sort of notoriously... Um, but even well, Googling it, like, Google Jamie Killary and Coraline and nothing comes up. You're 100% sure it's him? Well, you were at the talk. Don't you remember him talking about it? Uh, I think he Not was... immediately. Oh, okay. Well, I might be completely wrong, and maybe he was just brought in, because they definitely... I'm pretty sure they used Dragon Frame or an early version of Dragon Frame on that. I don't think I think he was like some sort of director of photography for a bit, and I don't think he stayed for the, necessarily for the whole length of the production. Right. I think I found something on Jamie Tullery working on uh, Coraline. Okay, what does it say? Check this is actually. <laughs> this is on DragonFrame.com. Yes, yeah, this is him. Okay. Uh, I'm glad I'm not mental. From November 2006 to <laughs> April 2007, I had the pleasure of working on the movie Coraline as the supervising art director. There you go. I that never, is I very never... conspicuously absent then from IMDb. It's weird, isn't it? It might be on the Coraline one, but it's just I didn't see it on his own. Either way, it's not something that's sort of like talked about that much i guess i never doubted you laura bendis <laughs> thanks steve um <laughs> but yeah it's an odd one but uh, anyway that was a very it, long, in case rambly of, way of saying he's amazing it's all right like we said it's a long film um <laughs> <laughs> is, is it a case that is it ever a case that people like work on films just and just get paid outright as a consultant or but, uh, but are not credited is that ever the case I don't know. I, I mean, I guess it's feasible. That certain roles, I think. Hmm. Um, Normally, it's if there's like some sort of bad blood. I'd imagine, like if they like they did it and then they didn't use anything they used. They, you know, they suggested. Hmm. But generally, if like I think you have to, don't you? I don't know how how. Um... How aggressively Wait, normally it's, it's part policed. of your contract, isn't it? That you would say, like, and, you know, and part of your fee, basically, is that you get credited on the thing. Unless it's specifically stated that you don't. Hmm. But then I've been doing some a little bit of consultancy work, and I, I hadn't actually broached the subject of getting credited on it. I was hoping I would, but I wasn't going to be like, otherwise I'm not going to do it. But... Hmm. um. But they, they were the ones to sort of approach me, like, would you like a credit? I was like, yes, yes, I would. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Now you just got to wait for him to spell your name wrong. I can never spell his name. Go ahead, Kaliri? Yeah. It's C-A-L-I-R-I? Yeah, it's a, in my head it's a really odd spelling. 
Just watching the credits to Hellraiser Inferno. <laughs> All right, there's no Lemony Snicket. <laughs> what I do remember is that that was whatever people's opinion was of that film. I like that film a lot. But everyone loved the end credits. Yeah. Because it, it might not seem that, like, mind-blowing now, but it was actually not really a very common visual in films. Um that sort of level of like animated end credit sequence. You'd have stuff that was quite playful in animated films. Um, but to have that really nice kind of like sort of, you know. And the thing I really love about that is that it's actually not paper cut. It's at all after effects. Yeah. And I really, I just like that, that fact yeah. that he was able to get that level of texture and artistry into after effects, you know, quite a long time ago. Well, I'm guessing this would have been sort of 2004, 2005-ish. And I think that was a... I remember that being a kind of turning point for After Effects as a post-production software, kind of becoming properly legitimate. And there was like the After Effects look a lot of stuff had for a while. And then... Which was, is to say, kind of very stark, very unblended. And then everything just kind of became a lot more advanced quite quickly. And I think it became a sort of major player. Um, it wasn't just sort of something from MoGraph. Um, but it became a real sort of post-production tool. Um, he's also, interestingly, he is, he's thanked on IMDb in for the short film more. Um, and he's also thanked for in Anomalisa. Oh. And he's also thanked for something called Thanks for the Memories. Okay, doke. I just found that funny. Does it say thanks for thanks for the memories? Memories, as in breasts. What? <laughs> uh, we've lost Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Descended into filth. Unbelievable. So we're back on stop motion now. Mm. It's beautiful work, isn't it? It's this beautiful papery texture but the puppets yeah. were made out of paper the obviously the the prince looks like he could be made out of anything but his head's actually made of paper that's that's right isn't it, it it's uh, like a paper clay yeah so i think that would mean i think i've used paper clay a long long time ago and i think it it sort of gives you this nice texture but it also takes color very well is it like das um, is it like what das i don't know what that is um it's like a sort of air drying clay that's like fibrous. Maybe I'm not sure, hmm. but it ha- I, if it's what I I'm thinking it is, then yes. Yeah. Um, but also they hand sculpted every head for this puppet as well, um, because they wanted to keep that material and they wanted to keep everything very organic and naturalistic. And they actually had a very surprisingly small crew for what seems like quite a big big film. It's very long and has some proper production behind it. Their actual stop motion crew was quite small. And um, the people that designed the puppets also made the puppets. And, you know, everyone was very involved in all aspects of the process. Hmm. Which is unusual on such a, on a, on a feature film. On well, a feature film that's not technically independent. And especially on a film which you would imagine would be quite anticipated, given that it's, what is it, the third most uh, translated book of all time. 
Yeah, exactly. As we said earlier on, so you'd think people would be a bit more, well, yeah, there's definitely an audience for this. But it just goes to show you that it's not just because the IP is big doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a place for a more low-tech, lo-fi quality that and and for the book because i mean the illustrations for this book are not amazing they're very charming and they're very people are very endeared to them because they've grown up with them but they're not great illustrations like they're not detailed and they're not in in a in a classical style well drawn but there's a lot of poetry to it and and also that like we said earlier the book is about you know the book is sort of open to interpretation in that very kind of French poetic way so it actually makes far more sense that the film would largely be constructed in a way that's is very ad hoc and analog and organic because that's actually more true to the book hmm so uh, do you guys remember the first time you read the book do you remember it being a big part of your childhoods I don't think I've ever read the book didn't you read the book today? No. Oh, I thought you said you did. Art of book. Oh, the art of book. Um, well, I have it somewhere. Um, it was a gift. I mean, not a long, long time ago. I didn't read it as a kid at all. Um, and it was a gift from a, a friend of mine who um, felt that it had a lot of stuff in it that was kind of... Um, parallel i think to um her and my friendship and uh so it was a nice kind of way i think to be introduced to it um because it i think said some things on her behalf that she was struggling to say um so yeah not as a kid Hmm. i'm not sure if it would have been the kind of book i would i was you know maybe i mean i liked as we talked about in the, the last few episodes i mean i liked stuff like roald dahl and um, things that have a kind of analogous um, side to, you know, the adventure. And I'm not sure if maybe it would have gone over my head. Probably would have. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, what about yourself? Uh, I read it, I remember, I remember reading it 25 years ago, and I know it was 25 years ago because... Um, we went on on holiday when we were when I was a kid, but it was it, it, it was what I went on holiday with my mum and my and my auntie Frances, and I was I was young but not old enough to kind of go and and get drunk with them on an evening. <laughs> it was like somewhere like Mallorca or somewhere like that, and so they gave me the book. And said, "You, you've got to read this book while we go out, because <laughs> obviously there was no TV or anything." Uh, and so I just remember, and they said, "There's going to be." Uh, me, Auntie Francis said, well, "Have you been reading your book? Make sure you read your book. There's going to be a, there'll be a little <laughs> quiz afterwards. Make sure you read your book." Basically, it was like, "Keep quiet and don't touch anything. Don't stick your fingers in any electrical sockets while we go and get drunk." Um, and then on the last day, she was like, "Right, have you read the book?" And I, I basically recited it to her and she was like all right shut up all right all right shut up all right sh- shut up steve shut up and then and then this happens and then that happens and then this happens and then this happens and yeah um i i remember that uh quite fondly 
Um, <laughs> yeah, that's my that's my memory of the book. It's quite a quite an exact memory in terms of the, mm. where I was when I read it. But um, the the story itself kind of stuck with me because it was weird, but didn't really stick with me completely. I'm recognising all these images that I'm seeing on screen, and I'm being transported back, but. I couldn't recite the story like I could recite, like we were talking about the Roald Dahl books or, yeah. you know, any of the the other types of books I was into as a kid. I was more into comics, though. Huh. He's also stopped mentioning me. I forgot about this. One you love the, the character work. One of the very the early, like, concept artists they had involved, but, like, right at the beginning when they were pitching was... Um, Chris Sickle from Red Nose Studio, who is someone I love. I love everything he does, and has always been someone I've really wanted to see. He does a lot of his own animation, and he's been involved in a, like a couple of like independent things. But his puppets, he does like puppet illustration. Um, and I like it. You can see it a lot in in the actual puppets as well. But I always think it's a bit of a shame that they didn't figure out how to actually animate his puppets because he's often referred to in lots and lots of things like uh, the interview I did the other day for 100,000 Acres of Pine and one of their mood boards for how they designed their characters, especially in the way they painted them, was him as well. Like he's really heavily referenced because he just has a really nice quality to his work. Um, But that's another part of this film I really like is that he's in he's involved in that way and I I, I think possibly because my undergrad was a mixed degree of um, animation and illustration I always have a lot of like I have a lot of fandom for illustration people and, and illustrators that I like like with Missing Link one of the illustrators on that is someone I really like as well and Coraline had an illustrator I really adore uh, who did a lot of the initial stuff. This puppet is amazing, by the way. The snake is all just made out of like little circles of uh, material so that What's, you get this well, bend. Stacked on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you look, it's like just little wow. discs and that's just, it's such an insanely clever thing. You know, like that thing you would get from like shit markets and it was like a, <laughs> it was like a wooden snake that if you held it sort of like slivered. Oh, yeah, I have one of those. Yeah, exactly. Wooden. Or like the God, fish. so posh. We had plastic ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's a sim- similar thing, but the wood one is, it's it's a solid piece of wood that's sort of s- slatted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so on it's hinges. It's loads of hinges, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, except in the wood one, it's not. It's just like the centre part of the the wood. Except the wood one's better crafted than your northern one. <laughs> it's just easier. Like, it's an easier thing. But here, you can see it. It's Yeah. If you have the art of book, it's on page 86. But it's just, I just love the, it's such a clever puppet design that you wouldn't really be able to get away with on a lot of stop motion films that aren't um the whole point of them being craft centric and and texture and texture and paper and the idea of it being something that makes sense and looks like it's created almost by children well it looks like spun thread yeah mm. but it's like, a little circle of discs. yeah but that, i mean the overall effect it looks like a crafted snake it doesn't look like a, a real snake so it sort of yeah. fits the purpose yeah they're not trying to replicate reality i think we're about to see the fox which is the best stop motion puppet look at it it's so it. bloody beautiful just look a, at it it's a nice looking fox so look at its little that. trotty legs it's amazing <laughs> 
just ah, uh, the amazing. And also, a lot of the puppets they didn't make doubles of, which is really weird. Wow. In a in a feature film, because especially ones that are made out of pup, uh, paper, because you know you get that wet, you're fucked. You know, you mm. drop it or you like you press it too hard, and also like all of the scarves and the tail—they're just paper with wire in them. Which is just like even on a like a student production or a short production, you'd be like, oh, "That's a bit risky." Yeah, but something that has like, I just it looks painfully delicate. But I just love like when we, if you go and listen to the interview we did with them before, they're just their way they explain it and they describe it. It's like, oh, I just really liked it. Like if I needed a new head, I'd just carve it there and then. And I'm just like, oh god, the freedom. Like, I, I, which I, is. I, yeah. I just really love I love the fact that they really they almost approached it with this short mentality. Because hmm. that's that's something I would do if I was making a film. Like I don't necessarily have everything I need going in and I'll cut a piece of paper up to make eye blinks on the set because I'm like, oh crap, I forgot that I'll need this <laughs> at some point. Or oh you know what would push this really far is if it, if I crease this piece of paper here to make that look more like eyelids closing or something, or I just drew it on. Um, but, you know, you don't think about it when you're just making your own independent film because it, it's yours and it doesn't matter. But, like, I get the feeling that they didn't just have this big corporate person breathing over their shoulder all the time, being like, how are we go? How are we doing? What's going on? And they were just allowed to be creative and animators and work organically. That's the dream. It is... It is- the, the CG in this film is incredibly well done. They are playing with lighting. They're playing with absolutely fantastic visuals. It's and a some of the character beautiful... design is really, really lovely, especially later on with some of the later adult. It is, yeah. It, 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 it's really nice. But as we're watching the film and it's cutting between the CG and the stop motion, I'm finding in my head, I'm going, yay, boo, yay, <laughs> boo, yay. I think, I think it's quite a gutsy move because quite often in this film, they are, I mean, because it is this, inter- it's not like big brick of stop motion. Like if you think back to what we were doing with James and the Giant Peach, where it was like pretty much all live action, then huge ch- chunk of stop motion, dream sequence, bigger chunk of stop motion, live action again with the stop motion puppets sort of integrated in. Mm. And But it kept it quite smartly separate. Where this, it's really like CG, stop motion, CG, stop motion. And, and also a lot of the characters are replicated. So like we just saw the um, the mum and then we saw a stop motion version of her. We Earlier we saw the, uh, the businessman and the king and the um, conceited man. And then later on in the film we see them again, but as CG... Uh, real world counterparts and so it does create this really like like it would be quite a good um this would be a really good film to write a paper on because you especially if you're writing a paper or anything about cg versus stop motion Hmm. because you have literal direct parallels all the way through the film um because you you literally it's very rare that you sometimes you'll get like and you get in the book as well you'll get like maquettes of of cg characters that they've created so that the modeler has an idea of space and weight and and density of the character but it's rare that you see a fully formed cg character who is destined to be animated cg 
and also a stop motion counterpart of that same character because you don't generally do that like because you don't generally make a stop motion film and a live act and a cg film at the same time well two different two different production pipelines it's making me wonder how they would have put this together how you know i have a feeling that the cg side of it was done in a completely different place because wasn't the stop motion stuff done in montreal ben it was like in an old shoe factory or something I do think that yeah, I mean yeah, they would have been separate outfits. Yeah, yeah. they were. I think they were in like. I don't think they would have been working in tandem because there isn't really CG and stop motion integration. No. So that eliminates the, the main concerns of having a unified production pipeline. You don't really need that, and also if you, you have segments. When you think about things like uh, any Tim Burton film, and also like when you hear stories about Isle of Dogs or Fantastic Mr. Fox being made, and how Wes Anderson did all of that from his flat in Paris. Whilst it was all being made in 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 uh, London, like yeah. the idea of like in your head that you would have stop motion on one floor and the CG department on the other floor, and they'd have all these meetings. I'm sure they had tons of meetings, but you know, what I mean, it wasn't like they were like holding each other's hand whilst animating the same character. No, I really <laughs> love the the fox toy. That's my favorite part of the CG world is the little fox toy. I think it's just amazing. I like to imagine the meetings where you've got the stop motion animators and the CG animators and the CG animators turn up they're all I'm just really going to play on stereotypes here they're really straight laced and you know well groomed and everything and the stop motion Very animators clean. turn up all covered in glue and <laughs> <laughs> just paper birds in their hair yeah scruffy shirt with loads of burn marks on it and stuff yeah like mad scientists turning up. In my in my experience, that does tend to be true. <laughs> like CGI, like I every CGI animator I've ever come across are either extremely clean looking, like or wear even like really pristine, like the kind of people that iron their t shirts and jeans, and or they all and they all wear baseball caps for some reason, and then the stop motion people are all wearing jumpers that they've like fix themselves <laughs> or like are wearing every different color i mean i'm just using myself as an example because i wear like every pattern at the same time and kind of look like a persian rug most of the time <laughs> um you know and and obviously there's you know these are all just people so they there's all the individuals but i do find that yeah I, and I, because i think it's a completely different mindset like Stop motion people are inherently used to being like, oh, here's a bunch of crap. What can I make this into? And like rummaging for things and they have the eye of being able to turn anything into anything. Mm. Uh, like Henry, uh, once again, Chris Sickle is a great example of that. If you look at his website or you look at any, uh, there's a couple of documentaries he's done on things and he's, he's notorious for just like having lots and lots of stuff in his workshop because he uses a lot of found objects in his work as well because he makes like, He'll make cars and motorbikes and that kind of thing. And he's just, he he's not really, a, he's done so, stop motion, but he's, that's not really his his main gig. But he definitely has that same mindset where if you're a CG animator, or oh, and I would say motion graphics is kind of similar as well, like you are in the land of coding. Yeah. And, and clean, and it's all about, you know, there obviously there's artistry in it, like huge amounts of artistry. Um, but it there's a lot of mechanics to it. Mm. Um, 
and obviously in stop motion you have the the other side of it where you have like mold making in and there's a lot of like very precise stuff that has to happen um but you know if you're more on the kind of analog side of it and you're a little bit more like these things there is a lot of bodging and like just putting stuff together and hoping it stays together and which it wouldn't really work in cg you can't just hope it won't break later on because it definitely will like if you've got any flaws in your rig it probably will show up in the animation yeah and also when you think about like it looks so like effortless and stuff because it's it you know cg is able to create this hyper real movement and real naturalistic style but when you know obviously how animation works you you do realize that their arm could just go through their entire body at any point if you wanted it to (laughs) and it would be really jarring but it definitely could happen and you sometimes see this on like buzzfeed articles of like 15 mistakes in in pixar films and it's like there's like an arm coming out of a cupboard or something um because you forget that that's that's real and that's that that can happen because they're not tangible things that exist in the world and that's not something you can really do in stop motion stop motion can look awkward because it's maybe not designed well or the animation isn't as good but it does live in the physical world so you're never going to get like an arm that's stuck through the torso by accident but there's that sort of detail that they that these that the cg people are really kind of married to I, I think it was on twitter i saw like a um a tweet from somebody who was like a vfx supervisor on avengers endgame and there's a moment where um the uh, main bad guy clicks his fingers and he's wearing this metal glove i have to describe it because i'm sure you've not not watched it <laughs> but um or seen any anything no. about it <laughs> um but he's got his big golden glove and he snaps his fingers um, and no one noticed apart from the guy. So everyone's cheering in the cinemas as this thing's going on. And the guy who did the CG, is he's got his head in his hands because he's absolutely disgusted by his work because the fingers intersect slightly. Oh. <laughs> but he's the only person who noticed it. <laughs> and if he hadn't have sent that tweet, no one would have noticed it. And I think the other thing with that, like from the modeling and the animation point of view, is that you forget that. And I think also any kind of computer based animation gets a, a bad rap because people think, oh, you know, you can automate it and you get all these stupid things that come out and like, no, you can automate lip sync. And you're like, yeah, but it looks like trash. Mm. Um, and you can get all this automation. And it's true, you can automate a lot of it. But actually, automating it is actually worse because then you've got to unpick it all to try and make it look remotely believable or good or like a human being ever touched this thing. So yeah, there's certain things they can do to like um, duplicate things and that kind of thing. And logically you're like, yeah, they could do that. They don't though. (laughs) Because like the whole point, like they've got the opposite battle of stop motion where stop motion is trying to mimic uh, reality. And that's why like when we were talking about Isle of Dogs and we had that sushi scene or we had the scene in the fact, in the uh, laboratory and I was talking about how I love stop motion scenes that look like automation because I know how hard that is and there's something really satisfying about it as well like just things happening in a sequence but you know a person's done it by hand Mm. it's the opposite for CG like you're not impressed by something that looks automated in CG because you're like well because it was probably automated 
But if it if it looks really naturalistic and it looks really organic, that's why people get impressed by hyper real looking things or things that are sort of mimicking stop motion, which I have my own issues with. But it's still very impressive because you're like, you did that, you did achieve that, and that is a humongously impressive thing to have been able to do to make CG not look clinical and cold. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, is it the adventures of Tintin? That, um, oh god yeah well, the I, fetal I, I, tintin i i don't right for the first time watching that film i thought this is gonna be terrible because i watched beowulf and it was terrible and i watched uh polar express and it was terrible and i know that those films have got a new generation of fans that are probably listening to this going no sacrilege but you know you're no. wrong you're wrong yeah um but i watched tintin and i remember thinking if this is performance capture they must have got animators in somehow or, or, and they did, obviously. But they must have got animators in because I, I actually could notice that when, say, Tintin hit the floor, he hit it with a thud because it was animated. Yeah. Whereas when Beowulf hit the floor, he just kind of... Rolled away. F- floated away like a... Because like, he's, he, he's landed on a crash mat. Yeah. like Not but, on the floor. And so it looks like the, 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 the pixels going towards each other in Pong you know, just just bouncing across the screen. It's um, one of those interesting yeah. things, and I don't know how true this is now, but I remember there being like a bit of a stink a couple of years ago because of Andy Serkis and how he was saying, like, I think his real problem was that he was like, I should be able to get an Oscar for doing what I'm, I do. Mm. Um, but he was sort of talking about how it's all in the performer and and the animation is sort of secondary. And, and then someone also broke it down and was just like, actually, most of the time, the motion capture is just used as reference. Yeah. And not the actual, like we might, the it's kind of like what you're saying about automation. There's a certain level of that that does come to it. But then actually the skill is in breaking that down and injecting life and art and love back into it because just because an actor did it, like at the end of the day, like there's still someone had to go in there and make it look like a chimp was actually <laughs> emoting, which is a hard thing to do, which no actor is able to do because they are at the end of the day human. Yeah, there's. But, well, you're not seen the original Planet of the Apes, though, have you? With the no, rubber true, mask. True. I mean, <laughs> there you go. That, that was all sorts of other weird. Or everyone just looked like they had half a coconut attached to their face. Yeah, they look like Baloo in the Jungle Book. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's weird. What were you saying, Ben? Just, I guess, that sort of in furtherance of that. That what he brings to the table. You know, I'm sure in terms of like stunts and stuff like that. I think there's a lot that's very commendable. But yeah, I do think you're, you're deluded if you think that you're the absolute heart and soul of the character performance yeah. on a production like that. Um, and I don't know, I think that maybe uh, when he's, he's also generally regarded as the guy, yeah. like the guy who is the, put the balls on him, make him, you know, dance Because he around. also set up like that course and stuff as well. Um, so I think that maybe to kind of preserve that, you do have to kind of big yourself up and, you know, d- d- inflate the degree to which um, you're crucial to oh, the Oh, yeah, process. and I'm aware that, like, a lot of actors and people say stupid things in the moment because, it, you know, it's one interview that he's sort of, like, A, maybe just having a day, but and it kind of gets... But that is a kind of common thing, with, especially, like, 
uh vfx and and like cg like special effects and films and they're like is i mean it's like the argument with like the new lion king where they're like it's live action it's like no it isn't what are you on about But I, I also suppose when it comes to interviews, he might be talking to an interviewer about his acting experience. Yeah. And then that is picked up by an animation publication who go, hang on, why are you disregarding the animators? Well, no, he was asked a question about his acting. But that does ha- it just happens a lot that yeah. especially... And I do feel like CG is such a dense and complex skill set to have. Yeah. And it's so impressive. And they really do get tret like shit a lot. Both, both by like people that aren't knowledgeable and by their own industry, and it just it just feels like for a smaller stop motion gent really is in the grand scheme of things, and similar and two D is sort of like somewhere between the two, and you know lots of shitty things goes on in all of them, but stop motion has always struck me as the more friendly of all the animations, like because it's sort of accepted that you're, you know, you're kind of mental to have gone into it. Because it's the most laborious and like it's always about to die. And but gen- if you go into it, it's because you genuinely love it. Um, and I think the same is for any animation, 2D or CG. But CG just seems to like as a career path, just seems to get shat on a lot. Yeah, like yeah. from from within, like from the people that use it and rely on it, like f- live action people. Like you wouldn't be able to make any of those Marvel films or. Avenger films if it wasn't for animators it would just be a bunch of actors running around in green screen or like you know everything would look like it was made in the 80s if we didn't have special effects Mm. and you know we had the whole what was the thing where everyone turned everything green the green field green wave remember this a couple or a fair few years ago now but yeah when everyone yeah Yeah. what was that called you know what I mean, though. Uh, yeah. Um, because you know they they can't uni- they have they hadn't they didn't have a union or they couldn't unionize or whatever, and they were just getting tread like shit. And you have you hear lots of horror stories about CGI and special special effects companies that like really work their their people to the bone, and they have to do late nights like all the time. It's not even like a favor; it's expected. And, you know, it. they all seem to work on very short contracts. And then you have the whole, like, stuff with the sausage party guys and how they just got absolutely messed about. Yeah. Well, that just sounded like a toxic um, management situation. And don't get me wrong, it's happened in the history of 2D. Like, obviously, we have, the uh, like, the sweat box at Disney and all that kind of thing. And I'm sure, and I, you know, there's dubious things that goes on in a any industry, but especially in the film industry. But I just feel like CGI particularly gets a raw deal. The Life of Pi thing was uh, Rhythm and Hughes, mm. and to kind of get the job done, they ended up kind of bankrupting themselves. So this film goes on and wins an Oscar, and then everyone gets fired. Mm. Yeah. Wasn't there somebody who said uh, a CG guy who said uh, not CG guy a, a, a movie producer that says if if I've not bankrupt a CG studio whilst making a film I've not done my job. Jesus Christ! What an asshole! What a lovely world. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to find that quote now and figure out if it is actually a quote. Because otherwise, I've just def- you know defamed somebody. Well, I mean, you didn't say the the name of this hypothetical person. Uh, so. Let's say it's Ben Mitchell. 
So uh, now, now I've got to find it. I'll see you in court, bucko. <laughs> you have to admire the crispness of this miserable world. Like, they really have done an amazing job at making the real world just really very realistic in, in its bleakness. I'm going to weigh in. I'm not in love with the hair physics of this world. There, I said it. Why? Sometimes I just don't care for it in particular. It's a bit clunky, maybe, but... Yeah, I don't, I don't like the... I don't um, mind that. I just assume it's stylized. But that's amazing. Look at that sequence. This sequence, the lighting on it, everything. Yeah. Like, the fact that she's she's driving into a red light, which represents she's driving into danger purposefully. Yeah. And she's in danger, and she's doing it because of a friend who is this old man, but... Because this is okay, so this is when we're going to start seeing. Um, is it is it now that we start seeing the representations of the stop motion characters in the real world? I think we're coming into the the last act. Something I feel like we missed earlier, but with the um, with the other characters, the other adult characters in the um, stop motion world, the idea of using Ricky Gervais for the conceited man was the was the best casting I can think of in any film. Well, he just throws himself into Oh, he's so good. And what I really love is that if this film had been made maybe even a couple of years later, that character definitely would have been voiced by um, James Gordon. You think? Yeah. Because he... I mean, it would have been more apt because I can't think of anyone more conceited. But, like, I'm so glad he's not the voice of the character. Because you remember there was just a period of time where he's done the rounds in animated. Yeah, I was going to say there was just that period of time where he was he was the hot ticket, and I think this just fell in that just before that. And I think if it had been produced like a year later or a year like one year either way, it would have ended up being him. I wouldn't. That wouldn't have occurred to me. I I think that definitely the conceited character in general is one of the more embraced things of Ricky Gervais is like yeah. he really has has put that into a lot of his off stage persona as part of his like you He's know. just perfect casting for it. Yeah. But it drives people nuts. Oh, like, for ages a- like I hated him because I I thought that was really him. Yeah, I think a lot of people... And the thing is, like, why wouldn't you? It's like Poe's Law. Well, it's like, because you're he, not he, he exposed was, to someone that much. But he was also never off. Like, that was... Yeah. For a long time, that was his presence on and off stage. So, I, yeah, but I, I think that the... Um, I mean, the thing is, his off-stage presence, as far as we're concerned, is when he's being interviewed. So he's still kind Technically of on Technically on, yeah, yeah. And I think that that's the thing that people struggle with, is, like, someone isn't... 1000% down to earth and self effacing and humble. Uh, but no, they're carrying on playing up this narrative that they're a bit like conceited. I must destroy them. And well, it's not that, just I wouldn't watch anything he did because I just thought he was annoying. Yeah. No, I, I don't mean your sort of reaction to him. And, uh, there are people who hate him. Which is fair. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you, you know, as someone that is a fan of his work, that is. It is an act, and actually, he's a very intelligent, and very interesting person for the most part. But like, I don't break my back defending no. the stuff that's uh, harder to get through or a bit annoying. Um, okay, so the fox is alive now. I've forgotten how that happens. I just like it. 
just embrace it just accept it <laughs> look at it it's so bloody cute <laughs> so I, I I guess we're assuming from this point that everything that's happening is in her imagination I don't really remember it seemed to my, my memory says that and this was what you were saying before about it being very literal in interpretation that she actually goes up into space and finds all the people I think she's dreaming it. I think we'll okay. find out at the end, but it, if, part, cause if I, it I, is literally that she's done this, that's quite jarring. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit chicken running now, isn't it? There's a, there's a film that's been uh, in the news lately. What? Controversy. Oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah, we should have waited to do our Chicken Run podcast <laughs> oh, yeah. until there was some actual news I'm glad we about. didn't, though, because it would have just been half an hour of us saying how, like, we agree, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, agree with her being sacked? Or, or, no, agree with her being Pick another curb. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen with that? I think they're going to probably renege and go back, unless they've already hired someone else. My theory would be that the there is some deal in place in terms of the production um, I wouldn't, that has secured probably someone else or has their eyes on someone I wonder else. if Netflix has a situation like they used to in the old days of like Hollywood where it would be like an actor would be like, you know, tied into a studio for a number of films and they couldn't go off and do anything else until they finish doing that you know like with I, th- I think that still goes on yeah so maybe it's that maybe okay. i like to think that it's like a more holland drive situation where like oh, they God. have to like this is the girl and think- if they deviate <laughs> then there's going to be hell to pay do you think rick um adam sandler will play rocky that's just someone that i know like, that why like, not like <laughs> is owned by netflix now i guess well so it- that's a point yeah two birds it makes you Literally. it makes you think about the actual the actual story though doesn't it because um if they're not too keen on getting Julia Sawala back who has a very distinctive voice i don't think anyone else could do her voice no. um then does that mean that she's not going to be a bigger character in the film is it going to be about this uh, her daughter who's a character is it Molly the the character in in, in the film um or have they got rid of Julia Sawala because it's symmetry because they're not going to get Mel Gibson back? You know, as if a fair few kind of... But that just seems silly because... <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no reason like, why... Either way, like, if she's not in it that much, then what was the harm of having her do it? Yeah. And if yeah. it is her, if she's in it a lot, then why would you change it when her voice hasn't changed at all and you didn't even ask her to do a track reading? That was great, though. Like, when she just filmed herself doing the dialogue and she sounds exactly the same. <laughs> But then yeah. they, when she, she showed them that, and their reply was, oh, you're right, you don't sound any older. We're still going with someone else. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Well, that was in the sort of original state. They basically just said, okay, you, you got us, but uh, we're just not doing it with you. Oh. So you found out the dark excuse was BS, but, well, what are you going to do? Well, I, th- I found that quite harrowing and, and, and quite upsetting, really, to, to know that that decision, that they're not going to turn back on that decision, because it would seem like a kind of... 
what 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 are they what are they achieving from that? Are they are they going to showing we won't be bullied by people we're bullying? You know, what's the? It seems strange that that didn't work on something that's so small and would make quite a lot of difference and is actually quite problematic. But we were able as a as a people to turn around an entire production of the Sonic film because we didn't like how he looked a bit. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not a beloved character it's not a film that i imagined did particularly well nor will i ever watch it he's so a had pretty the- beloved character there's some pretty dark spaces on the internet not not for the likes of me who grew up team <laughs> mario there's still some bad blood there but yeah begrudgingly i have to concede people do like Sonic. but you know what i mean shot. like it's just it i understand that yeah. it, the design was hideous but like they managed to overhaul an entire production to make the character look completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are some great theories about like how they, they did oh, a trailer with a shitty version of the character um, just to get buzz around it. Um, yeah, and But I, I doubt that was feasible. what really happened, but I like that theory. It definitely could be. Like, it wouldn't be out of the realms of no. remote possibility. Yeah, the notion of like in a cartoon you sound too old. Like that's not bothered anyone in cartoon making. You know, like Woody and Buzz Lightyear, like they sound their age now. You know, they don't sound like they did in nineteen ninety five, so Yeah, there's also um the Simpsons cast as well. Yeah. You know, they're getting on. I mean, we've said in the past, obviously, um, is it Harry Shearer that just does Harry Shearer's voice now? <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely... Um, there's a kind of weariness, which could very well be the the chore that that job must be now. Um, hey, incidentally, in the other Little Prince podcast we did, we ended up talking about The Simpsons too. <laughs> it's an amazing recurring theme that pops up. Sorry, are you remembering that, or are you just taking a punt that we spoke about The Simpsons because it's one of our podcasts? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, you know, we've, we've effectively sidetracked from the film we're actually watching for the last 20 minutes. Yeah, what are we watching? Uh, it's getting exciting as well. The film's looking fantastic. The She's she's taken to the sky. She's taken to, the, to, to find the little prince. Is that what's happening? I will say that this phase of the CG side of the film, you know, obviously there's a bit more, um, well, not this exact scene, but in general, there's a bit more life to it. But hmm. I think that being the point, isn't it, with the CG is that as the film goes on, it becomes more characterful. It becomes more imaginative as she be- remind- rem- remembers or becomes more imaginative and remembers that she is actually just a child and yeah. that she has this capacity. And here's the king as a bellboy. Or is the return for someone that operates a lift? Um, bellhop, I think. Bellboy, I think, is just a, a bean thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> I think bellboy is the guy that, like, takes your luggage to your room. I know, wait, that's Bell, a bellhop. Bell yeah. Bell so what's the elevator guy? I think it's just elevator operator. Ah. You know the person who takes the luggage to your room and the person that operates the elevator in the hotels that I've stayed at is me. There you go. You're uh, multi-talented. 
It's, I can't you know, imagine wanting like the I've never that's never been something that's been offered ever in any hotel yeah. biggest <laughs> line cinema ever <laughs> or clearly I don't stay at fancy enough hotels that they come they remotely ever offer to take your baggage for you. Yes. And if they did I'd be a bit like who the hell are you get away from my luggage. Well it, it happened to me once when I when uh, me and Jen went on our honeymoon. And they were like, just leave your bags here. We'll take them to the room. And I'm like, like hell you are. <laughs> I'm from the <laughs> north, mate. I'm not leaving my luggage with nobody. We'll, we'll, we'll take it through to the room. Yeah, but I'm, I'm literally going to the room now. I can just carry it with me. Yeah, but we'll take it for you. What? Leave me alone. Leave, yeah. Get your hands off my luggage. I'm having I you looking actually, at my underpants. Unbelievable. The only time that's happened was when at our wedding. And because they had to take our luggage. Because remember, they made us move on the second night. Oh, yeah. That was annoying. So they had to do that because we were currently, we were at that time getting married. <laughs> so this bit I wasn't really crazy about either, like this. No, I feel like this was a gutsy move to be like, I'm going to make the little prince an adult and he's going to be this creepy. Yeah, just sort of... It takes away from the kind of ethereal-ness of the little prince. I could have dealt. I think I could have dealt with everything else if they hadn't che- made the little prince a human character, because it kind of. I mean, it makes complete narrative sense, and I do understand why they did it, and and it's like you know full circling it and and bookending the thing. But the little prince is so. The, my reading of the little prince is that he's not really a person. He's like this, he's an ethereal idea. Yeah. He's the um, the conduit of creativity and childhood. And so to actually place him, like, what if the little prince became an adult? You're like, oh, no, disgusting. That would never happen. It's like Peter Pan as an adult. It's just wrong. Yeah. Oh, the hook's a good like- film. It is. <laughs> but that aspect of it always freaked me out a bit. Like, yeah. that's, it defeats the point. And also that he would be, he wouldn't just be like, like, if she'd met him and he'd been this, like, very wise young man. Yeah. I think I w- could have dealt with a bit the fact that he is this... And I, I think it, it's her gleaming onto these people that they are the people in the books. It's not actually meant to be, this is the little prince. He's just a replication of what she... She's sort of, like, arguing with herself and her childhood. And she sees, you know, adulthood as this scary thing. And she needs to know that... There are there's another option than becoming a boring adult. Yeah, I I, I like that read of it. I think I wonder if it's maybe giving the film too much credit. Well, that's what I'm assuming from like the whole point of the CG. But it the trigger or the the gut reaction to it is, oh, this is unpleasant mm. to see the little prince as an adult. Yeah. I don't like it. I guess the um, now that I'm thinking back, before she flew away. Didn't she like fall out the window? No, oh, yeah, she banged her, her head. Pretty hard. Yeah, so maybe this is all a dream. This is. I mean, I, I'm not sure if you're aware of the fact that she like. Did you see that scene where she's going into the city and it's just like a planet? Yeah, yeah. I think that means it's a dream. Right. Also, if it, we said if it that was the meant talking to be fox. Actually, sorry, the animated huh? puppet is probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- there's too many things in this that are like. Yeah, it. I mean, at the end, it sort of goes back to what we were saying at the very beginning, that it feels like a very um, 
Americanized, homogenized Western interpretation of what is a very poetic book. Yeah. If this had been like made in Japan or was a Miyazaki film, then I'd be like, yep, it com- it could completely be that sh- this is actually happening and this is the real world. Because the real world aspects of Miyazaki films are tangible at best. Um, not tangible. What's the word? Like tenable. No, tenable. Tenuous? Tenuous right. at best. But yeah, I think this, I forget if it was the last episode of the episode before, it could have been a few episodes of the series, because we've done quite a lot of book adaptations mm. at this point. But it um, it sort of brings to mind what I was saying about like how um, Doctor Sleep, that movie that came out uh, last year, it, it kind of forces an interpretation of The Shining on you. And that didn't sit super well with me. Um, and I think that sort of essentially that's what this film is kind of doing. You know, it's we're watching the director's interpretation of The Little Prince. And like, as I was saying before, like, especially well, any kid's book will mean like a whole bunch of different things. And, you know, any, you know, literary scholars will dissect the work of but children's authors with this film and the book is the assumption that it is a children's book which is also arguable like it seems like a children's book because it's quite simplistic and it has children's it has illustrations but it's not necessarily meant to be read uh, for children or it's meant to be read to children but it's not necessarily meant to be just for children as most children's books aren't there's meant to be a take home for the adults well this is very much a a reading of the book from the perception of what they think a child would understand. Yeah. Which I think is the only reason why I find it a bit... Not that it doesn't work, but I just feel like, like I said, it feels a bit one level. Mm. It's a bit like also with um, Watership Down and how, you know, that's been absolutely analysed to pieces and the guy's like, yeah, I just wanted to make a film about rabbits. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I'm sure that I, I don't really know um, anything about the sort of true intentions of uh, Antoine, what's his face, um, as regards the writing of the book, what inspired it, what compelled him to write it, who he wrote it for. I don't know any of that. So people who do know are probably listening to this tearing their hair out. Well, yeah, actually, I, me, I'm tearing my hair out. That's why I'm bald. He actually um, had a crash himself, didn't he? The author. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, is that right? I just, I've murdered that, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, he, he actually had a um, a crash in the Libyan desert because he was trying to uh, break a speed record uh, to win some sort of prize. Um, and he was trapped in the desert with very little and he had to kind of make his way out somehow. But yeah. Um, I've got it up here on the um, which I can't gives you the themes of the uh, you know of, of, of the aviator and things like that. As far as the content, then of um, like his encounter with the prince and the stories that are relayed to him, is there any kind of parallel to his travails, uh, 
or is that just kind of the sort of the setup essentially? Yeah, well, it says here that um, they had only one day's worth of fluids and they were in the desert for three days. And so they both had some mirages and had um, audio hallucinations. And then they had really vivid hallucinations. So I don't know if any of this actually comes from, from you know, uh, severe <laughs> dehydration. <a> yeah. <laughs> fever dream. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it's... Um, it, apparently that, that experience was in part relevant, but um, who knows? I know that the the people that look after the... Um, the estate of the the author actually say that the film is actually extremely faithful to the book because of uh, the idea of friendship and conflict with the the mother. Um, apparently, it says they illustrate the place of children today in a tough world of competition and solitude. It's why the two stories are really well linked. Uh, this is the originality and the genius of that movie to show that the magic and the power of the book is still operating today. And that's the uh, Oliver de Agier. I don't think that actually explains or answers your question, but they're just basically saying that they like the book. I like the film compared to the book. I don't know a what... good endorsement. Yeah, I don't know what the actual original author would make of it. Um, I think he'd probably yeah. love it as well. Like, he seems like he'd have been quite chuffed with it. I think he probably likes anything after being in the desert for three days. <laughs> <laughs> like, they're just in a good mood about everything else you see. Yeah. But it also, like, thinking of how small the book is and thinking how, like, little writing there actually is and, and the illustrations and stuff. And it's a bit like you were saying with the, um, with Watership Down one. It's, it's just a book about bunnies. And there's one, it's just a book about a boy that lives on a planet. Like, he probably didn't read as much into it as everyone else has. Mm. But that is the issue of something that is very popular. Um, people will bring things to it, and every time you re- people read it, they bring new things to it because you bring whatever's happening in your own life. Um, yeah. And it, I don't think we've... And it's not like... this. In no way does this film not work. It's a very well-constructed piece of... Um, it's a it's a very well constructed piece of filmmaking narratively it makes sense it's very satisfying um but like with anything you will always bring a certain level of like your own baggage and your own ideas of the thing and and think i think this works better i think this does doesn't work as well this bit's a bit confusing and i would have preferred it to be something else or whatever but you know you can't really get away from the fact that this is a very well conceived film that is a very good reading of the book Mm. and as as i think we're all in agreement of everything that directly adapts the book is wonderful Mm. all of those scenes i think work very very well and it's more just questioning isn't it like that's the whole thing with these podcasts and why we haven't been you know we haven't done what we normally do and have interviews and we haven't been doing it in a way that we invite someone that actually works on the film. This is meant to be like a lot of podcasts are an analysis and a, and a reading of the film from our own specific points of view. Um, and I think that's why those kind of things, and it's the same with like YouTube videos of people playing games. The reason why it's so appealing to people and why it's such good 
like media fodder is because people want to know like people don't necessarily want to know the whole truth they want to know they want to read it at the same time as you are and mm-hmm. disagree and agree with you as and when they see fit and that's why podcasts work it's quite freeing to not be shackled by expertise well, <laughs> and actual insights because yeah. <laughs> the problem is although it would be it would also be really enjoyable and because we know quite a few people that have worked on various projects it would be lovely to sit down with people that worked on films and be like and then then tell you anecdotes from things and little tidbits and stuff but once again you're only getting like other than even if you interview the director or the writer or something you're only getting one viewpoint on it and you know that's why film theory is such a dense and interesting area of um, interest and study is because there are so many ways you can read anything really yeah Uh, and that's what people find interesting and actually as as both people that review a lot of things and interview and talk to a lot of filmmakers, but also make films. It's almost more enjoyable to see how I like it very rarely happens because my films don't really get out that much. But when you hear people's um, reviews of them, whether they're good or bad, it's actually quite fascinating because you're like, yep, that's not at all what I had in mind, but you go for it. Mm. And I, I would enjoy that more. Like I would love to hear, people's reactions to like my last film because it was quite open-ended in some respects and i i'm i'm sure it's rife with misreadings one of my favorite parts of teaching was always showing the films and then asking the students what they thought of it and i remember showing michael dudot dewitt's father and daughter and people like had their hands up to their mouths they were they were you know, absolutely, um, they're taking a blow emotionally as as a lot of people do when watching the film. And I remember one student said something along the lines of, well, it's, yeah, it's uh, fine. I'm not, it doesn't affect me. I'm not bothered by it. And everyone being absolutely outraged. <laughs> but it's it's that person's, prerogative really to have that to to not have you know you don't you don't have to have the same experience that everyone else has watching a film and i suppose that's the thing with films is that as as you're saying laura is that your film now belongs to the audience and so that that interpretation it belongs to you don't worry no one's going to take any money off you (laughs) but there's nothing to take (laughs) spent it but um that that film belongs to the audience now and any interpretations are theirs. And I think that's that's such a wonderful thing about filmmaking is that sharing of from the creator and the, the viewers. I think that's probably that's what, one of the reasons I'm into it, into films. Sorry, go on. I was just remembering that film that everyone was absolutely in love with. It was like um, Out of Time or Father Time, something about time. The f- the Western CG film. Do you remember this one? The Cliff. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think me and you, it felt like we were the only people in the world <laughs> that was just looking around going, guys, dry up. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're heartless old fuddy-duddies, aren't we? We're like, you know, let's stop. It's only emotions. Behave. Grow up. <laughs> well, I think that mo- emotions by committee, mm. <laughs> I think I, I have a pretty like thick callus <laughs> against. 
because it just feels very un really it feels like something's been designed um cynically i think sometimes of- though when you you spend as much time watching films and and talking about films as you do you do and it's part of the reason why i've never really um subscribed to this idea of studying story and reading all the books about story arcs and and like all that kind of thing because I'm like, oh god, wouldn't it just make? Because th- everyone I know that's really into that just are horrible to watch films with, because they just know it. They know f- the formula, like they know what's going to happen, and they know it's going to, you know, this is going to happen here, and then this is the inciting incident. I'm like, oh, what a fucking boring life you live. That you know every possible story arc and structure. I'm like, who cares? Like, if you know film, then you should know it inherently. Do you really need to read a book about it? Yeah. And also, if you do and you study it, like, granted, they make, you know, they they know how to make a story work and they know what is lacking from a story and they have a much more clarity and they're not doing what I'm normally doing, which is like, I don't have a middle or an end. (laughs) But for me, that's part of that's that's the joy of making a film is not knowing that. That I think is where you get so many decidedly unremarkable films that technically work, structurally work, make sense, but they're not interesting. No, but in terms of the world of short films, say, mm. for example, the films that are the least engaging, I find, are when they're made by people who have like a lot of experience at Disney or Pixar, yeah, and they've just been through the mill and the of story. that very formulaic story mm. production. And so they come up with something that, on paper, you know, hits all of those beats, but the beauty of, I think, the, the wider world of shorts, for example, is that we can kind of kick all of those formulas out of the window and sometimes smash them to fucking pieces. <laughs> um, and so a film that plays it very safe, it's not going to be that memorable. But a film that kind of disgusts you or really makes you laugh in an unexpected way or just devastates you... And that's and that's really where people who really study story properly and and really do take it very like academically almost is that their the logic on it is that you learn about story you learn about story structure so you can break it. But I do wonder sometimes with that if it it is like a shackle like you know I feel like you'd be more scared to break it because you know what works and what doesn't so well and you've seen it and you can like all of the best films you can sort of tear down and analyze towards like story structure and see how it worked but i don't know it just feels like a really odd way of making a especially an animated film where if anything is possible i can kind of get it when you're trying to make like like a fictitious live action film but because with animation you can do pretty much anything and you can represent it visually and you can you can sort of show all your working out um, as you go because you can you can literally show them the inside of the character's mind if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, it just feels... I, and I, I mean, I am not a story person. I'm not very good with story at all. Um, I often need quite a lot of help with like, Laura, this doesn't make sense. I'm like, nope, I'm aware of that. <laughs> but it makes sense to me so I'm not the best person to talk to about story really well I think 
whatever your opinion is of your storytelling ability, that doesn't necessarily have to have a kind of correlation or connection to your ability to appreciate story. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I think that, you know, I mean, that's, you know, why, I think why film criticism and filmmaking are such kind of, like, different industries. I don't think the overlap is that enormous. No. Um, and I think that's probably because if you're so in film, like if you are a storyteller, um, the last thing you want to do is talk about it. It's <laughs> also going to mar, I think, your ability to impartially critique something. Mm. Um, you know, and that's why I think you know it's it's sometimes we gravitate towards stuff that we just really enjoy, but not necessarily stuff that's the kind of stuff we would make. And I think ourselves. also generally that's why on the site we're not hypercritical of things like because we do tend to take it like if we don't like a thing we'll say it and if we don't think something works we'll say it but i think we're more inclined to or at least i am when i write i'm more inclined i can't help myself think about the people that made it and go okay so maybe the story didn't overall work or i didn't like this the way they designed the character but this was really lovely and this aspect was because i can't not watch an animated film and not break it down into how it was made or the various aspects of what it is to make a film, not just the story. And the story is king and the story is important. It's the most important thing in the film. If the story doesn't work, none of it works. But there is always, I think, in animated films especially, something to take home from pretty much yeah. any of them. Well, that's why, we're in, that's why we do what we do. You know, we love animation. We're not just going to just have a go at, you know... This is the, weird. Just the story. <laughs> It's weird to see the little boy, little Ooh. prince in CG. Yeah. That's quite odd. And also, he still has no eyebrows. That's quite weird. <laughs> but His eyebrows as an adult look like pipe cleaners. Yeah. They're very bizarre. Do you see what I mean, though? That this would be such a good film to analyse design for yeah. f- and, and, and yeah. uh, methods of animating what works and what doesn't. because you do have literally every character in two forms like if they and you would have the 2D as well because you could have the illustrations from the book yeah and that's very rare you don't normally get like this like little James and the Giant Peach thing going on <laughs> it has wings it makes me want to play Super Mario Galaxy <laughs> <laughs> he does, doesn't it? <laughs> it's Lilith. That's yeah. That's rough. That is. That's when the way that like the camera panned down her arm and then up towards the little prince, and I just went, "Ugh." <laughs> I think the only be- only because I think what we were talking about earlier on the difference between CG and stop motion. That's a beautifully modelled, well rendered, well lit, uh, well designed uh, character. However, because I've seen the stop motion character and all of the the beautiful imperfections that come with stop motion, I've, I'm already in love with that. You know what's quite odd about it is that he seems quite creepy, but actually, if you just looked at the stop motion puppet by itself, he's quite creepy because he just has pin eyes, like, you know, pinprick eyes. Yeah. yeah. So Shark it's eyes. weird that technically you should find that more creepy, but there was something, like, creepily fetal about the CG version of him. I do remember when I, um, when we were speaking to uh, Anthony Scott, mm. um, who had also worked on James and the Giant Peach, and, um, 
finding certain shared traits, I think, from a design point of view, mm. that I guess were largely coincidental, but there are angular qualities um, to the head and the face shape and the yeah. eyes. And it's a bit like, like we were saying with Joseph, like, Joseph's work is very similar to, I think, to the stop motion stuff in this. Right. And also um, Heather Colbert as well, who also works, I think it's Heather Colbert that works at the hangar as well. Her puppets have a very Little Prince look to it, but they were obviously doing this before Little Prince came out. But they, they're all clearly, like you say, influenced by James and the Giant Peach. Well, also, it's, it's an, it makes things a lot easier to have your character with uh, pinpricks for eyes. I mean, Bob the Builder has got, has got dots for eyes because you don't have to animate eyeballs you don't have bead to bead eyes are really lovely to animate i yeah. a couple of my old characters had bead eyes and they they're easily the nicest to to animate well the the alternative is using stickers isn't it little or, or, or there's oh, other or ways glass eyes, but, but like, like for tv production it's it's stickers usually and that is you go see you go round like McKinnon and Saunders or Factory or something, and you'll see all these stickers of eyeballs <laughs> all over, and the animator, you'll shake hands with them, and they'll have all these little pupils all over, stuck all over the hands. Um, and both yeah. are, like, great. And even, like, I mean, technically, glass eyes are beads as well, or, like, work mm. in the same way. They have a hole in them that you manipulate with, like, a needle or something. But there's something really weirdly pleasant about just a single bead pupil over something that has whites to its eyes. I don't know why, and it should be creepy, but it just isn't. It's just really nice. And it's amazing how much you can emote with just a bead, like a tiny, tiny bead. Yeah. Because the bead also has a center of darkness as well because of the hole. So really, I mean, if you look at it, they're technically, they have black pupils and then a black iris and then no whites to their eyes, but it doesn't read like that. It just reads like little dots for eyes. Center of Darkness are my favorite metal band. <laughs> oh, this is a nice scene. The aviator reminds me of my neighbor, not the one that you know, but his father. He looked a lot like him. His name was Tom. Uncle Tom. This podcast is dedicated to Tom. Oh, bless. Was he an aviator also? No. no. I don't think so. I think he was probably in the military, but maybe he was in the Air Force. Doubtful. Probably Navy, because living on an island. Was Navy the popular choice? What, living on an island? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So we're at the end now. This is a long film. I am roasting. You want me to open the window? It's like um. And James of the Giant Peach. I don't know about you, but I'm roasting. <laughs> I've been at the moment. When you look at the little girl from behind, she looks like Edna Moulds. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've been really pleasantly surprised by this. This is a this is a lovely film and a lovely tribute to to this to this special book. Well, it- watch it with the sound on. Maybe you'll change your tune. Yeah, Fair no. enough. Well, it's definitely a lovely film to sit down with your child and watch if they could pay attention for this long, which I would be a bit dubious about. Don't have a child, so make one and then make, <laughs> make them watch this. <laughs> <laughs> that's. I mean, that's the only reason we're having children, just so I can like make them watch films. Yeah. yeah. Just a, yeah. We've got a playlist. 
Leffin. I love there the like go. little misshapen star. Aww. Very nice. Neat. It's a lovely film. Mm. I'm glad that ran over the other one that I have absolutely no idea what it is. <laughs> what? Well, I, I can tell that this was a film that um, you had a lot to sort of, you know, I, I, I got the impression that you were rooting for this one. Yeah. I, I mean, I said as much. Like, and I hope this wins. I think was my exact wording on the last podcast. These are nice drawings. These are lovely. Are these all in the Artop book? Mm-hmm. Pretty much. They, I think they spent quite a long time designing her. Mm. Oh, look, she's drawing the thing. <laughs> I think it's a faithful ad- adaptation. I'll give it that. It just the way that it keeps going back, um, and the the stop motion bits are just ah oh, amazing. And it's just so rare to see like stop motion nowadays that looks like that like because even like Phantasm Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs and stuff that has got that kind of analog feel to it it's still very very high production value and detailed Hmm. and this just has a much more different feel and it also I don't know why it just reminds me of making puppets and stuff as a child because I think because paper was always available and they the 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 little prince is wearing like a jumpsuit made of crepe paper. Yeah. And uh, there's something about crepe paper that just makes me think of childhood and like for some reason Sunday school. Like that seemed to be the only thing they ever had. Like crepe paper and tissue paper is like a thing that you only had as a child to make like crap flowers out of. <laughs> but it's been put to good use in this film. Mm. They use like a, a really specific linen-based paper in this that sort of, I guess, gave it more strength as well. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful film. There's certain films that, like, I don't, like, obviously this is not... Often there are films I really wish I'd been able to work on, and this is probably one of them. So, uh, this obviously beat The Adventure of the Mark Twain. Do I sense a veto in future, Ben? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, that film, the concept of it is actually sort of similar mm. insofar as it's, it's you know, a, a short story adaptations. It's kind of an anthology film, I suppose, with this kind of wraparound, um, like, metaphysical premise of Mark Twain being, like, an actual character in it, sort of in amongst his stories. Um and sort of traveling through space on an impressive flying machine and going from sort of planetoid to planetoid looking for a comet. <laughs> um, there's there's certain sort of shared sensibilities to it. Yeah. Um, made a long, long time before. So it's a very different type of production overall. Uh, it's stop motion, but a very different sort of approach. It's claymation, I think, essentially... Um, uh, in the literal sense, like where the phrase yeah. was was coined, so it has a pretty different vibe. But still, I would perhaps maybe put a bit of distance between this one and that one in terms of episodes. Oh yeah, so, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe if it um, loses out another vote later on, um, yeah. 
it'll go on the veto part. Because it's worth talking about. It's not a... I mean, there was some theorizing, I think, that because on the Twitter poll, it was Comic Quest, and that's why it sort of initially fell behind, because people don't know it by that title so much. But I'm not sure if it's hugely known either way. No. In terms of... I, I, I think people who are into their animation and know their chips and really love stop motion probably have more of a chance of knowing it. I don't think I've really... I've maybe seen clips and photos, but it's just not so... I think also because I'm not... I know nothing about Mark Twain either. So there's just never been any correlation between the two. There is a thing about Will Vinton's body of work also that it's just kind of, I think, flown below... um, In England, it's flown below our radar, Mm. I think, a lot of it. I think um, it just came at a point where, like, international th- things, like, it, obviously we had Disney and stuff, but smaller operations were just not as commonly distributed around. I mean, obviously also Wilvington Studio got taken over by Leica, and that's what Leica is, came from. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of, like, lost to the years. But, like, so many people, like... There's, like with all animation history, obviously there's a lot of history all over the world, but like England and America tend to get a lot more press than anything else, and America even more so. But they have a really long history of stop motion because of Will Finton and people like, um, oh, I forgot his name, Art, Art Chalky, Chalky, the guy that did... Um, yeah, Gumbo. Yeah. Um, and then other things, but... Yeah, I... Am I am I on drugs or are the credits going in reverse? It's weird, isn't it? I was going to say that it's like it's really bizarre. It's just nurse. It's yeah. really weird that they're going backwards. I'm looking at it going. Is the film in reverse? What's happening? <laughs> it's nice. So, should we talk about what we're going to do next week? Yeah, let's do that. We've got plenty wanna... of time this time. We're not just firing it off. We've got two yeah. minutes. <laughs> do you want? Do you know what you want to do next time? I think we should do some more CG. Uh, I'd like that, because we really haven't done any. And just as we're watching this, obviously we're watching it on Netflix, and a big advert for Hotel Transylvania popped up, mm-hmm. <laughs> which kind of reminded me that that's on this, uh, the CG pile. But I think one of my favourite CG movies is Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. So Okay. So we'll do those two against each other. Yeah. I wonder, how do you think that's going to lay... Because I, I do like Cloudy with Chance of Meatballs. It's one of the few films I remember going... CG films I remember going to the cinema to watch. Yeah. Um, But I do find with, like, the slightly more slightly more obscure CG films that they really disappear. Like, one of my favourite CGI films is uh, Monsters vs. Aliens, but I can't think of anyone that would even, like, have an opinion on that film. <laughs> oh, wow. Other yeah, than yeah. But I really... I love that film because I really love used to really love B-movies and I just it's a great example of those and there's there's a lot of just great lines in that film yeah um, it's, an, it's an interesting one next week then because I love Cloud with a Chance of Meatballs when it first came out I thought it was absolutely incredible and I remember thinking this you know the, the guys that are directing it are amazing I, I want to keep my eye on what they're doing and that's obviously Lord and Miller who are now um, you know 
top of the pile there at, at Sony working on stuff like Spider-Verse, working on uh, Connected, which is coming out soon. So there's a lot of good stuff there. And then obviously with Hotel Transylvania, you've got Gendy Tartakovsky, another yeah. hero of animation for me growing up, but obviously who's moved into CG effortlessly. So I don't know really... Which way it will go. But, but yeah. both have a really interesting like art style because I feel like Cloudy and the Mount Chance of Meatballs is almost like a precursor to Hotel Transylvania because it has a lot of that same, not mm. quite to the same level, but it has that same kind of bounciness. Absolutely. So, anyway. We've got 13 seconds left. Uh, vote and share and make sure you vote on Twitter, Facebook and the website. But until next time, follow us on Squiggly and see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.